Welcome back to the Sporting Crypto Podcast, where we talk to people at the intersection of sports and Web3 about their journeys in this fascinating world. On this episode, I am joined by Scott Lawin, who is the CEO of Candy Digital. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Pet. Pleasure to be here. I feel like we've already done the podcast, but like off air, <laughs> like on calls and stuff and when we've spoken. So this should be easy, right? I hope so. Why don't you start by telling the audience a little bit about what you're focused on at the moment? Yeah, so Candy Digital is a company that I co-founded in uh, the end of 2020, sort of mid-pandemic and pre-NFT explosion. And the thesis around Candy was really to build a platform to help onboard the next 1 million, 10 million, 100 million people into Web3 before we were calling it Web3. And the thesis was that the momentum behind blockchain-based technology, cryptocurrency, DeFi, et cetera, was clearly manifesting itself, but it was still complicated. The UX for crypto for most people was really challenging. The idea of setting up your digital wallet, getting your seed phrase, the potential for you know losing that and losing all your assets was frightening to a lot of people. And a lot of folks, you know, viewed it purely as a financial tool. Our view was that digital assets were going to become increasingly important. Where we see the future going is that digital assets are at the heart of every kind of customer and fan engagement. And so Candy was set up to build a business to help sports entities, entertainment companies, cultural entities interface with customers, make it really easy for people to onboard into the things that they love. For us, that is digital collectibles. It's kind of where our business started. But Candy is focused on really digital fan engagement. That can be ticketing, that can be loyalty and rewards, and and underlying all that is collectibles. And your journey personally up until that point, how did you get to the point in your career where you wanted to co-found the digital collectibles company? Yeah, uh, it wasn't necessarily an obvious place where I would end up. Without going too far back, I started my career actually in uh, architecture, sort of what I studied at university, and then made a kind of quick pivot into finance. So I spent the better part of 25 years in finance, in banking, and in alternative asset management businesses, and really always at the intersection of technology and finance. What got me interested, and it probably goes back to my architecture background, is was being a builder, right? And so thinking about, okay, how do new products get created? How do new markets get created? How does finance, whether it's financial technology or financial products, sort of make their way around the world? I got introduced to crypto and Bitcoin in sort of 2013. Some friends from MIT had done some research projects on it, fascinated really through the lens of finance of understanding, okay, is this a new currency? Is it a new store of value? Is it a transaction processing layer? Is it all of the above? My own initial experience, unfortunately, is when I went to go try to buy Bitcoin, it was complicated and took too much time. And so, you know, I certainly didn't buy <laughs> enough when I should have, but it kind of stayed on the periphery for me of understanding, like, you know, where was this ultimately going to go? In 2016, my business partner, Mike Novogratz, who's the founder of Galaxy Digital, I was sort of checking in with him, seeing what was happening in his business, again, really looking at how big financial institutions, how big pools of capital were sort of entering the space. That's when I started to go deeper in my own journey about understanding not just the financial services element of it, but, you know, really the broader applications, the regulatory infrastructure, you know, how we saw sort of the rails getting built, et cetera. And then in 2020, when we started Candy, it was really about, okay, momentum is there. The big pools of capital are there. The big money managers are investing. Hedge funds are investing, et cetera. 
now what's the path for everyday people? And, and that was kind of the, the journey that I was on that, that got me there. And let's go back 18, 24 months, maybe even longer than that to the co-founding of the business, right? You say that the thesis at the time was onboarding the next 10, 100 million people. Your spidey senses must have been tingling a little bit ever since the CryptoKitties boom that kind of exploded Ethereum. And then I believe Topshot, the beta was somewhere in 2019, but maybe didn't take It wasn't far. on the radar screen. It wasn't yet. on the radar that much. So take me back to Scott three years ago and the thinking behind uh, where you thought success could be. Yeah, listen, to be honest with you, we didn't see the NFT market really taking off for three to five years, right? Our thesis around candy was to say, okay, let's look at these communities of sort of passionate individuals that are connected by something that is universal that they love. And in this case, it was, you know, sport and entertainment, right? And we looked at the collectibles market and we said, okay, what are the characteristics of a physical collectibles market that we think makes sense having on chain? And that can be authentication of that particular asset. It could be fractional ownership of high value assets. And then it can be a much more efficient way to store and trade those assets, right? And so when we started, frankly, with Candy, the business plan was really to look at physical ownership, fractional physical ownership on chain, and then ultimately digital only assets. And we thought that there was going to be a period of time as you introduced the technology, as you sort of built a kind of fiat first approach to the space and you kind of brought people along that journey. 2021 changed all that, right? Suddenly Top Shot explodes. There's lots of reasons, you know, we can talk about of sort of maybe why it got so big so quickly. And what that did is it really accelerated our plans to lean into the digital first uh, approach and digital first strategy. It's ironic, isn't it, that three years after that, this kind of real world asset boom is happening right now. For listeners that don't know, everything that Scott just described as their thesis in 2020 is kind of happening in the backgrounds and very much on consumer facing front right now. And we're seeing a lot of is it Courtyard.io that did the authenticated Pokemon cards on, on chain and you can buy them as a NFT authentication certificate in the front end? I know a lot of people a couple of years ago were thinking about this with soccer jerseys as well, but um, the business model around that didn't catch as much fire because the margins are smaller. It is crazy, right, that that has all of a sudden caught fire right now? Well, I think there's a couple of things, right? I think one of the challenges are the securities laws. There's obviously still a decent amount of uncertainty around what the regulatory framework is going to be for digital assets. And the idea of certainly fractionalizing a physical asset and selling you know, ownership shares in that, you know, there's actually a pretty well-trod path as a registered securities offering. So you've got platforms like Rally or Masterworks right, that do that with signed jerseys or artwork or things like that. And so... I think we looked at that and did the analysis around, do we want to be a business that actually is offering registered securities? It's a complicated business. It wasn't necessarily making it easier for folks. It was still, you know, you know, have to be a shareholder. You have to put it in a SPV, all that good stuff. I think what you're seeing now is the fact that the use case, the idea of authenticating a physical asset on chain makes sense to people, right? Things that relate to things that people can touch and hold, whether they actually have it in their possession or whether it's sitting in a vault somewhere, makes sense to people. And so in the market that we're in, where the boom has sort of come back down, a lot of the pure speculation, 
at least for now, move to the sidelines and people are refocused again. And okay, like, you know, what are we really doing here? Like, why are these important? How does the digital asset not just become a new thing to trade, but how does it actually improve my experience as a consumer, as a fan, as a community member? Right. And I think that's a big part of it. Let's take a step back again and going back to that kind of 2021 boom, Candy were very much at the heart of it, right? A big raise, I think it was um, 100 mil at 1.5 billion. And that was obviously to accelerate the growth that you'd seen in the partnerships to do some of the partnerships that you were probably talking about in the background at the time. What was that period like, the, the kind of craziness and exuberance that I think when people traditionally think about a crypto boom, you think about retail traders, retail buyers buying tokens created by crypto people. But in this case, it involved a licensee with big licensee agreements, which obviously makes things even crazier, right? Yeah. The early focus was around education, right? So in, call it March, April of 21, Top Shot's taking off and suddenly people are seeing tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of value trading. I think people looked at the use case of the digital collectible and said, okay, listen, we understand there's a you know robust marketplace for digital baseball cards or physical baseball cards, physical basketball cards. This is the next iteration. But very few people actually understood what was behind it, right? And so we started our business with uh, both Galaxy Digital and Fanatics as our kind of core partners and, and investors. And so we went around pretty quickly to all of the you know major sporting leagues and said, hey, you know, here's the thesis that we have around how digital assets can sort of live at the heart of this relationship around collectibles, around loyalty and engagement, et cetera. Here's what blockchain is, right? Here's what an NFT is, right? I like to say, you know, in 2020, no one knew how to spell NFT, right? You know, unless you were sort of in the business. And so there was a big piece of that. And then there was really the question of like, well, then what next, right? Like what, you know, why is this important? How does it get built? You know, what does it mean to be a licensee? And it's been a really interesting journey because the sports leagues and teams have a very well-established license model, right? They know what it means to license their IP to make a t-shirt, right? Or to make a scarf or something like that. This was sort of a new idea that, okay, we're going to create an asset that is a digital-only asset. It's going to, you know, have photography. It's going to have video. It's going to have, you know, graphics. But then if you're no longer a licensee, it lives on chain forever. Like, well, what does that actually mean? How do we think about that, right? So there was that another kind of educational piece around, well, what, is, what does it mean for licensors to enter this space? And then very quickly, you know, what you found is lots of other people saw the same thing, which is hundreds of millions of fans, global communities, big opportunities, and then the money started getting crazy. That licensee relationship is curious because... Normally you do a, as you said, a three season deal or whatever, but you have this blockchain element that is in perpetuity and mutable, especially depending on which blockchains, like they are very decentralized and it's almost impossible on the back end to, to get something removed. Do you think that at the time there was a quick move to try and like bucket this nascent thing into existing buckets when maybe in retrospect there should have been some newer thinking around it? I think that's the default setting. Primarily, the leagues 
are licensing entities, right? They protect those marks, which are worth a lot of money, right? And they constantly have people sort of knocking on their doors. And so, rightly or wrongly, the default setting is to say, hey, here's how we do it in media. Here's how we do it in physical goods. And we're going to sort of take that model and, and apply it here. We had a slightly different approach in the way that we uh, spoke to our partners, which is to say, our view is like, this is a partnership, right? This is a brand new industry. It's a brand new product. We have a near-term use case in the world of sort of digital collectibles. But, you know, we also sort of put our hand up and said, you know, hey, guys, like, we don't think the craziness that we're seeing is going to continue forever. Like, we honestly believe that the future of engagement is going to involve a digital asset. But I don't think we're necessarily going to be seeing, you know, $200 million of Top Shot moments trading every month, you know, for the foreseeable future. And so let's think about this not as a traditional kind of arm's length partnership where we just pay you a royalty. Let's really think about what does this mean in terms of how we build this business together, right? That didn't resonate with everybody, <laughs> for sure. And, you know, the, my follow-up question was going to be, how crazy did some of those RFPs or potential partnerships get? Because I suppose, as you said, in the licensee shoes, at some point you think, oh, well, that kind of nice this millions partnership which is a bit more egalitarian, is nothing compared to this like $20 million a year partnership where we don't have to do anything and they just get to use our marks and the minimum guarantee is really high as well. So it's a win-win-win for us. Yeah, I think, you know, listen, most of the examples of where uh, those partnership deals got signed, we certainly walked away from a few of those with the knowledge that we would have loved to be partners with those leagues but we knew they were completely unsustainable, um, both for the league and frankly, for our business, right? And I think what you're seeing now, not necessarily publicly in some cases, but you know, those deals are getting reworked. And so I think for the most part, the leagues wanna to continue to explore, but at the same time, they wanna get paid for those. Investors are much less willing to fund those deals uh, because they know that they're non-economic. And so as the whole industry continues to kind of figure out what's the right set of product market fit, some of those deals are going to get unwound, some of them will get restructured, and some of them will, will stick around. Do you think at, at a time, right, you guys raised a lot of money, you're in a position where your business is to get licenses and, and make a margin on that, right? Do you think businesses like Candy and others at the time were almost in a slightly lose-lose situation because you either overpay or you don't get the thing that drives revenue, <laughs> which is a, an annoying position to be in, right? I don't know about lose-lose. I would say any business or any new technology where suddenly people discover it, even though obviously blockchain had been around for a long time, cryptocurrency had been around for a long time, NFTs had been around for a number of years, the venture community broadly was totally underexposed. Anytime there's this huge sort of explosion of activity around a product, around a technology, the VC community looks at itself and says, hey, wait a second, like, I, I don't have any, I don't have a piece of that, right? How do I get involved in that, right? And so that's why you saw, you know, hundreds of millions and billions of dollars flow into the space. I think rightly, people, when they heard the thesis of, you know, what does it mean to have unique digital ownership? And you know where can this potentially go? Rightly believed that you know the future is bright. 
the time frame with which uh, that was going to come to reality, I think a lot of people assessed was just much shorter than I think the path that we're on. And so what became a business, you know, whether it's our business or Dapper's business or others of saying, hey, we're introducing, you know, the idea of a digital collectible, the idea of digital fan engagement to consumers, and, and we're going to build this out over time with our partners, very rapidly just became, okay, you know, who can spend the most money to get the most rights and it's game over. And so it's only lose-lose if you believe that if you don't sign all those deals and raise all the money, you never have a chance. And that was never our position, right? You know, we approached it by saying, we're going to do the deals with the partners that we think have long-term viability and a great opportunity. And if we can't get there, then we've got plenty of other folks to work with. And just before that, you mentioned the reworking of and restructuring of deals that are currently happening. Do you actually think that, that businesses like yourselves, and you mentioned Dapper and a few others, the ones that have enough capital on are in this for the long term, have a little bit of leverage now, right? Because the market's depressed. I know we've seen some, as I fly down into New York, there's some exuberance returning. But for the most part, the last 18 months, we've seen a depressed kind of crypto market in the backdrop of a bad macro environment as well. Is there some leverage that these companies have with sports leagues where they say, okay, well, our deal used to be 10 million a year with a minimum guarantee of X. Actually, do you now want 5 million a year or we'll just walk away and no one else is going to sign that licensing agreement? It's a good question, right? I, I think generally the leagues and the teams aren't in the business of trying to put their partners out of business, right? So I think, you know, you listen, you have intelligent, reasonable people on the other end of those agreements who understand that the market is very different than it was, you know, 12 to 18 months ago. Some of those folks viewed this as kind of a short-term experiment and they think that experiment's over and they're not necessarily interested in continuing. Others do see this as a part of, you know, how they want to build their licensing program or their fan program. And so they're willing to, you know, be more creative about those relationships. So I think it comes down to, you know, each individual deal, how it was structured and what the objectives are. And then for you as Candy, how difficult have these 18 months been? What are some of the lessons learned? What are some of the things that you folks have done to position yourselves as a business that can sustain with this environment and, and kind of thrive in a less speculative market? Yeah, it's interesting, right? I, I think for us, we never capitalized on, you know, the kind of pure crypto native gold rush in the space, right? We never did a, a 10,000 PFP project. Our thesis always was we were going to create a product that had corollaries to the physical market, right? So a digital trading card is our core product, our MLB icons. And that means that's a product that is going to be in the market every year, right? It's going to have a certain set for the season. It's going to have specialty sets around all-stars or around Hall of Famers, etc., and so very similar to a physical card, some of those are going to be scarce and rare and more valuable, right? And there's that that idea of being a collector. Some of them are just going to be fun things that you rip open in your digital pack and, you know, add to your collection. So we never sort of positioned those as trying to be the board apes of baseball. That was both good and bad, right? Because what it meant was our products were much more accessible, right? We sell our products for right? And so there's a broader universe of people who can purchase those and experience those and enjoy those. 
We also are fiat first platform, right? We're trying to talk to the fan and the collector who is coming to the space for the first time, right? Who goes to a, a baseball game, gets a digital commemorative ticket after that game, and then lands on Candy's platform and says, oh, wait, wait a second, I can buy a, you know, a digital pack of cards and, and open that up. So we weren't fueled by a lot of the crypto gains, right? People who were sitting on a ton of ETH thinking about you know, this new asset class to trade. Where that's helped us in the downturn is, again, we've got core collectors, right? It's not just folks who were sort of speculating to see you know, how much they could pump it up, per se, but they believe that this is the future of sports collectibles, right? They believe that over time, right, the candy icons that they own will be worth more, right? And it connects them to the sport. It connects them to their community. We would love to see the customer growth that we saw right in, in 21 and 22, because, you know, from a broad macro perspective, right, the industry hasn't done itself a lot of favors, right? The headlines aren't necessarily encouraging the everyday fan to be like, oh, wait a second, I got I to go check out NFTs, right? But, you know, people who are in the space still believe in the space. You know, they're still interested in growing the space. And that's what our focus is on. You mentioned the expansion of your partnership with MLB to beyond just cards. Have you seen good conversion from the commemorative tickets to people onboarding onto Candy's platform or you folks have worked in collaboration with someone like Improbable and MLB's virtual ballpark? Have you seen good conversion from those sorts of activities that are less speculative into the, the core product and platform? Yeah, 100%. The number one on-ramp for us is meeting a fan where they're at at the moment of fandom, which is going to see a game. So this season, you know, we'll have an excess of 100,000 new customers of Candy. And so there's a unique redemption. Unique redemptions who have gone to a baseball game, have received a redemption code for a digital commemorative ticket, have created a new account on Candy, and now have that in their wallet, right? We have a smaller percentage of those folks who then convert to be active customers, but that's an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity for us. It's an opportunity for Major League Baseball. What we think is really powerful about that as well is that is information in many regards that the league and the teams don't have. They don't necessarily know everybody who walks through the turnstile. Now we have a fan who owns a digital asset and we can send them offers. We can record how many of those digital assets they collect, whether they're active collecting you know, our digital icons, whether they're playing some of our trivia games. And that's all information that is helpful to, for the teams, it's helpful for the league, and it's frankly helpful to the fan because now we can identify those super fans in a new way. And so that zero-party data element of this whole space, when you're looking at big content owners and IP owners like sports leagues and like entertainment companies, hugely valuable. And you know we think that's where things are going to continue to go. We're going to talk about where things are going to go in, in the next part. But I do want to dig into two headlines that I'd, I'd love to for you to share as much as you can. On Obviously, one was a more negative one, maybe negative depending on how you view it, the Fanatics divestment, which was a big headline in the Web3 world because it was a big Web2 company stepping away from this space. And the other was your merger with Palm Studios, right? So the first of which was obviously uh, a move, I think, from my perspective anyway, I won't put words in your mouth, but Fanatics looking to capitalize on the gambling market in the States and stepping away from Web3 and doubling down on their existing business and going that way. And then Palm Studios, I suppose, was, a, was an opportunity to make Candy into like a full stack 
offering to some extent. Do you want to dig into those couple of headlines and what was the thinking, the whys on both of those things and why they happened? I think you just answered them both, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll elaborate. You know, listen, with Fanatics, Fanatics was an, a fantastic partner to get started with, right? If you're going to start a business in the sports space, there's no better partner in terms of relationships and knowledge and, and sort of fan and customer base, right? And so, you know, having Fanatics as a core investor in the business was instrumental to us having the conversations with the leagues, right? Helping to, you know, put our partnerships in place, et cetera. At the end of 21, you may recall Fanatics purchased Tops, right? Tops, obviously, you know, the most storied brand in uh, physical collectible cards, particularly around baseball. Tops had a, a nascent digital asset business as well. And so, you know, over the course of 22, we spent a lot of time sort of figuring out, you know, how do those two pieces work together or fit together? As the market started to shift in 22, I think. Fanatics just viewed the digital first strategy as one that, you know, they didn't feel was core to their physical first business, right? They're a global apparel, you know, manufacturer and, and distributor primarily. As you mentioned, one of the core focuses was also around gambling and betting in terms of them building up that part of the business. And so I think the um, physical first strategy with a digital add-on was just a little bit different than, you know, where we saw the business going. And we also saw the opportunity for the platform that we built to not just be sports focused, to, to you know, also capture entertainment and culture. You know, at the end of 2022, sort of, you know, shook hands and parted ways and brought Consensus in as our other significant investor. And so Consensus Software, obviously one of the core technology partners in the space, Joe Lubin, co-founder of Ethereum. And so certainly felt a lot of spiritual and technical and strategic alignment on, you know, what we think the long-term opportunity was together. As we came out of 22, as everyone's sort of shaking off the, the shock and awe of FTX and, you know... Um, Still doing that right now, right? Yeah, trying to, <laughs> trying to uh, you know, just re-underwrite the thesis broadly in the space. You know, we looked at the market, we looked at what had happened and I said, you know, okay, based on what I was saying before, ton of money came into the space, ton of new businesses got started. Some of those businesses built great technology. Some of those businesses had great teams. Some of those businesses probably can't and shouldn't survive. But we're going to go through this period of consolidation, right? The market got ahead of itself. Too much capital, too many businesses, maybe too many projects for you know, what this phase of the market could bear. We saw that happening in two spaces. We saw it happening on kind of the front end in kind of our business, the sort of partnership business and the customer business. We see it, see it happening on the back end, on the blockchain and infrastructure side. And so I said, okay, we can do kind of one of two things this year. We can wait around and see what happens, or we can be a bit more proactive about reaching out to folks who we respect, who we think have great businesses, great teams, great tech, and looking for ways that we can work together. And so had a number of those conversations. And, you know, one of the ones that uh, had real traction was Palm NFT Studio. That team, uh, Dan Heyman, who's the was the CEO and, and founder of Palm, came out of consensus, built a business with very similar thesis to us, which is building a platform for brands and IP owners and sports and entertainment and culture was going to be sort of this important middle layer because most of these brands and content companies didn't have that expertise or didn't necessarily want to develop that expertise. The core of fandom 
is owning a piece of your passion, right? And so finding a way to do that and creating different digital use cases on chain was going to increasingly be important. And so we were aligned sort of philosophically and technically. And so we brought those two businesses together in the middle of this year. Their core partners are with Warner Brothers and DC Comics. And so, you know, they bring a really interesting sort of background and community that's based on storytelling, based on fandom in terms of the canon of those stories, and also a similar element to our business, which is this sort of repeatable business looking at, you know, new comics that end up uh, getting minted as well as going back and looking at historical pieces as well. And so, again, the thesis of their business is not, isn't necessarily kind of a one and done mentality, but, you know, this new version of a consumer product. And what has that acquisition allowed you to do that you weren't able to do before? So I think it's done a couple things. I think it's certainly introduced us and brought a new community to Candy, the Batcowl community, which is sort of the core community that Palm built around one of their DC projects has been part of that. It's allowed us to kind of think differently uh, creatively because, as I said, there's more of a storytelling and gamification element of what they've done with their project and their community that, you know, we're continuing to sort of build around on Candy. And then we brought folks on that had a different sort of technical knowledge and technical background, particularly around blockchain and Web3 that really helped to enhance the team that we had internally. Well, I think we'll leave it there for part one. Before we do get into part two, I need to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by the HBAR Foundation. The most beloved sports brands understand that what fans want is simple, a reason to be passionate. The HBAR Foundation enables brands and fans to share their passion on-chain using the Hedera Network, the most used sustainable enterprise-grade DLT for the decentralized economy. Visit linkedin.com slash company slash HBAR Foundation to learn more and get the latest HBAR Foundation and Hedera Network news. Welcome back to part two of this episode. Scott, let's talk a little bit about where we are right now and where the future heads. What are you viewing as some of the big opportunities at this intersection? I think the big opportunities continue to be around finding new ways to onboard people into the space, right? If we look at what happened over the last couple of years, you know, if you dial up CryptoSlam and you look at billions of dollars of turnover, right, in certain projects, if you go a couple columns over, you look at the number of, of owners, right, and buyers and sellers, and we're talking about single digit and maybe double digit thousands, right? You know, one very simple review of the last couple of years is you had a very small number of true believers and sort of crypto wealthy folks punting around assets and generating billions of dollars of volume. The story obviously is much bigger than that, right? But to get to the next phase of adoption, I believe, and, you know, sort of the thesis of, of our business is we have to continue to find ways to create assets that have value beyond just speculative value, right? That are meaningful to fans, that are meaningful to communities, that are meaningful to customers because they actually enhance and extend what they're already doing, right? Digital assets, whether people are you know, knowingly buying them as NFTs, receiving them as kind of the tokenized version of a ticket, 
or accumulating them as part of like loyalty and rewards across digital participation, real life participation, physical participation, they've got to be easy. And it has to be less about convincing someone that there's a new technology that they can adopt or should adopt and more around saying, hey, this is just a new way for you to express what you're already doing and extend it in a, in a new and interesting way. There's going to be a spectrum, right? There's always going to be a core group of folks who see a speculative opportunity and investment opportunity, and that's totally fine, right? Those people bring liquidity and action to a market. Hopefully, what that does is it helps to continue to fund the development, the product development, the platform development, the tech development that then makes it easy for everybody else. And so lots of people talk about this being a build market, right? You know, a bear market and a build market. And and that's honestly what it is. I think coming out of the back of this and I don't know when that's going to be, you know, I mean, there's a little bit more heat and energy in the market. Now it feels a little better, right? To sort of see your ETH account or your Bitcoin account or your other coin account up a little bit. I'm not sure what's going to turn the corner for us to sort of, you know, bring people back into the space. But I think it's not necessarily going to be based on pure speculation. I keep saying, right, it has to be a market which is no longer 5% substance, 95% speculation. It has to inverse, right? And that's not going to happen overnight. I don't know if there'll be an uptick in crypto to the prior highs unless that balance is addressed. And as, as I said, it won't happen overnight. It will happen gradually. Yeah, I think that's right. I, th- I mean, listen, everyone is always looking for a quick fix, right? That's just human nature. If you take a look now, particularly in the sports category, right, the two use cases that have continued to have decent activity and traction are, you know, essentially gambling and gaming. Those things are, you know, sort of independent of the macro and market environment, right? People like dopamine hits, right? They like betting on things, they like gambling, and they like playing games. As we continue to sort of build things, you know, utilizing the power of ownership of a digital asset that can be composable, that can be a collectible, that can be used in a game environment, we think that's really interesting. And that's a big part of our focus for next year is to, you know, sort of provide more of that elusive utility by having other things that you can do. Some of those might mean that it's, you know, your collectible that unlocks a game piece. Some of it, you know, may be the fact that you've expressed your fandom by collecting a number of digital tickets that give you that opportunity. Yeah, I think it was um, announced recently that Artifact's latest uh, CryptoDunk sneaker launch is going to happen via Fortnite or some part of the announcement is going to happen there, which is a super interesting thing to to see. I mean, there's also been EA and Dot Swoosh saying that they're going to collaborate and we've already seen Dot Swoosh and Fortnite collaborate. That realm is very, very interesting because I was saying to you off air, we interviewed um, Robbie Young from Animoca and he said, you know, this is a $100 billion market compared to sports, which is much smaller. So no wonder people in sports are looking at that market and no wonder people in Web3 are looking at that market. And when you think about gaming, it is to some extent synonymous with sport, whether it's like Madden or FIFA, now EA Sports, or even like boxing games, fighting games, racing games. There's a huge overlap there. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'll be honest. I I was actually shocked in 2021 when the reaction from the gaming community was so resoundingly negative towards NFTs, right? Because to me, the idea of somebody investing their time and their energy, right, in playing a game and, you know, generating experience and sort of honing their skills 
and receiving rewards for that, you should want to own those rewards, right? You should want to, you know, be able to have those rewards be composable potentially, right? You should be able to monetize those potentially, right? And I thought the gaming community would be bigger fans of it, right? I think you're starting to see the tide turn a little bit, right? Uh, there was a comment in this last week, uh, you know, the CEO of Roblox mentioned NFTs. And, and to me, that's even more exciting than a sports game or a Fortnite or whatever, because that's where you really unlock creativity. Frankly, you know, one of the aha moments for me in the space in, you know, sort of 2016, 2017 is my kids were playing Roblox, right? I see how much time and energy they spend, not just on their own, but with their friends interacting in a virtual space, building in that space, and frankly, monetizing what they've built in that space. And so this idea that digital assets are going to be less important in the future is crazy. It's nonsensical because their life experience in their formative years and their friends is that things that happen in digital spaces are as real and as valuable, you know, it can be as valuable as things that happen in real life. And so this concept of not thinking that you would want to own that and build on that, et cetera, like it's just not going to happen. Right. So we're on this journey. I think it's going to take time. Right. I, I don't think we're going to turn a corner and, you know, have the market look like it looked at the peak of 2021. But we should have these moments where are, there are new product applications, there are sort of new use cases, there are new brands or partners that experiment in the space that'll start to be step functions, right? And it may be that if we did 100,000 commemorative tickets this season and we do you know, a quarter million or half a million commemorative tickets next season, that provides that on-ramp, right? For more people to sort of come into the space. You know, Those are the things that we're excited about. We touched on engagement and loyalty earlier in the show and just a moment ago as well. That is a really interesting market that has become the kind of 2023 buzzword, right? Loyalty. On the one hand, it makes total sense, right? On the other, there is this kind of um, part of my brain which is thinking, well, there are parts of the blockchain that make a lot of sense for this, but parts of it that don't. The permissionless access, the mutability, all those kind of things that traditionally a Web2 brand might not want to give up, right? And so how do you think those things are marrying up in real time when you're also trying to involve big big IP? Yeah, listen, loyalty and rewards don't have to be on chain, right? <laughs> There's plenty of examples. That said, there are advantages of creating what we think of these as these sort of vibrant ecosystems, right? Of something that is owned, something that represents a real life activity or a physical asset, something that represents an activity or a contribution to a community that all sort of feed back into kind of a loyalty and rewards ecosystem. And ultimately, the data that lives behind that should be more valuable to the brand or the content owner and the brands that are in that ecosystem as well, right? So at the end of the day, if I'm a Mets fan and I go to a number of Mets games, if I now have a digital record of that through my commemorative tickets, I've collected you know the full set of digital icons for the Mets teams, the Mets now have that information, right, in a way that they wouldn't otherwise have in the real world or offline world, they can identify Scott as a, you know, a big Mets fan and a big Pete Alonso fan, let's say, because, you know, he's, he's the player that I follow. And the next time I go to the stadium as a super fan, I could 
get an opportunity to go to batting practice, right? That's a way that you know the Mets can sort of use that information and kind of build a program around loyalty and rewards. Alongside of that, Anheuser-Busch, who's a big sponsor of Major League Baseball, right, can look at that and can say, okay, you know, who are the biggest fans across all 30 teams, right? Is there an opportunity to engage with them? Because they now own a digital asset that Anheuser-Busch can push a QR code to, to go get a free drink or a free beer at the, at the stadium, right? This idea of loyalty and rewards is not just being sort of points on a scoreboard, but being this dynamic relationship that can be really individual because they're digital assets that are in your wallet. And hey, you know, I might not just be a Mets and a Pete Alonso fan. I'm also a Batman fan, right? Or I'm also a Netflix fan. And my digital wallet shows those things if I wanted to, right? That's where I think that kind of new unlock comes. It isn't just sort of that, you know, single, you know, relationship with each different party. And that's where digital assets are, you know, have to be at the core. Yeah, because right now everyone looks at ages, gender, where you live, what you've done at work, whatever, as attributes to create a profile for someone that you need to sell to. Whereas I guess the future could be a little bit more intimate, potentially more private in a weird way on both sides of the coin. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think what's the killer app for blockchain? It's probably identity. Right. And so in a world where information and the amount of information that comes to you, your control over, you know, who sees that information, what gets directed to you, and then ultimately authentication of where that information comes from and is it real or not, I think is just going to become a bigger and bigger issue. Right. And so being able to sort of token gate your identity and the access that you are willing to give right to others, whether it's a platform, whether it's a brand, whether it's a marketer, and then be open to what comes on the other side, you know, that ultimately puts more power back in the hands of the consumer. And I think it's probably hard for people to look at that and say, yeah, you know, I'm not interested in more control there. The key is going to be making it easy, right? I totally agree. I mean, the identity side of things is, is something that's been talked about for so, so long, but there's no, as you said, killer use case. There's still a lot to be done on the infrastructure side of things. And speaking of, you know, we talked about Palm earlier. Do you want to dig in a little bit more to Palm Network and what it kind of means for some of your future hopes for Candy? It's a big strategic initiative for us this year, which is sort of finally bringing, you know, helping to bring the Palm Network out into the open a little bit more. When we started the business and we're looking for a network to mint on, you know, way back in 2021, you know, if you're going to sell $10 and $25 packs of digital baseball cards, you know, paying 60 or $70 worth of gas, right? On mainnet, the math wasn't going to work at scale, right? Clearly you were going to have some core collectors who would do that. And so, you know, we were searching for a network that provided low cost, you know, high throughput, sustainability, all things that were also sort of important to our, our licensed partners. In particular, one of the reasons why we chose Palm was also kind of the thesis around the, the way the, the governance of the network and ultimately the way that the reward structure, the you know, kind of creator incentives were there. And those have largely been under wraps. But Palm is on track next year to have a token that trades in the market. There is a native token on the network. It isn't traded. It's very, I think, intelligently 
looked at the space and said, hey, you know, the traditional model of going and sort of selling tokens in the market, funding a big campaign, kind of pumping up the volume and then trying to attract volume and, and partners has been done in an uncertain regulatory environment that could create some issues. And so the team there has been very thoughtful about saying, let's actually create a vibrant ecosystem. You know, there are 4 million NFTs on the Palm network. There are, you know, one and a half million customers that own Palm-based NFTs, whether it's in Candy or whether it's Henny, other creator projects, et cetera. And so the release of the Palm token and the positioning of that network really as a content and creator network and a set of tools, particularly around community-focused tools and DAOs, which is what the Palm Foundation has been developing, I actually think is really exciting because, you know, as I said before, I viewed this year as a year of consolidation, consolidation sort of on the business side, but also consolidation on the blockchain side. Right now, we don't need more block space. Eventually, we will. You know, we have to believe that more transactions are going to come on chain. But ultimately, there has to be this idea of what's the narrative around a particular chain? Why is it important? What does it mean for partners? What does it mean for customers? And so, probably saw a few months ago, Polygon and Palm announced a strategic partnership. Palm is going to become part of Polygon Supernet. It's going to be part of the ZKEVM strategy. It'll be the first multi-prover ZKM on, on sort of that roadmap. And so, you know, similar to what Immutable and IMX have done, right? You know, sort of the gaming chain living on the, on the Polygon supernet, Palm is going to be that creator and content chain. And so, you know, the foundation is doing a great job building out that ecosystem of partners as well as, you know, sort of content partners like ourselves. So I'm really excited about what that means overall, because it's been a little bit under wraps for the last couple of years. And also, as I mentioned before, not owning, but having access to that entire stack from candy in the front end and the, the consumers all the way to the intricacies of the details of the back end can be very advantageous in a market like this. Yeah, exactly. So this isn't the, the best market in the world to be having your token floated but I think, you know, the idea has been this is not a, you know, this is a long-term journey, right? It hasn't been, how does the foundation sort of hit the market at the top? This is about continuing to sort of build that tooling to support individual creators as well as big content owners. And I think that spectrum is really, really interesting. And to wrap up, final few questions, future gazing a little bit more. What are you most excited about at this intersection? over the next three or so years? Yeah, I think the um, things that we are the most excited about are continuing to sort of find new ways to bring people into the space. We continue to believe that doing that through our kind of core content partners will be the best path for us. I'm really excited about, you know, this idea of creating new use cases and engagement mechanisms for the assets that we create. I think that um, too many projects sort of sold themselves as, hey, buy this initial release of assets and then, you know, there's going to be utility forever. That's a hard business model to sustain. But what really lives on the back of that is not the fact that you have a small group, but that you have a community that can continue to grow and scale, right? And so whether that's gaming, 
whether that's loyalty, whether that's tickets, whether that's sort of cross-brand relationships, those are the things that I think everyday consumers can look at and say, you know what, don't care if it's called a digital collectible, don't care if it's called an NFT, I see that as something that's valuable to me, right, as a fan and a customer, and I'm going to go participate in that, I'm going to tell my friend about that. And I think that when we come out of the back end of this, Right. Again, it isn't going to be, we're not going to flip a switch and the game's going to be on again. We're going to see continued steady growth. Right. We know our best customers care deeply about wanting to find new ways to bring people into the space because they're believers. Right. They're big fans. They see this as the future. They want their community to grow. They have as much fun talking about Batman or talking about baseball with each other as they do thinking about digital collectibles. Right. On the business side, we know our partners, you know, at baseball, at DC Comics, at Getty Images, et cetera, they're excited about, you know, how this technology can sort of not just be a new revenue line for them, but be a new way to think about their business. And so those are the things that we're building. You know, lots of smart people are out there building similar things. And so I'm excited to see more of those come to light. And then not a controversial one, but what do you think is being a bit overhyped at the moment? Where do you think there is a lot of enthusiasm and excitement where maybe there shouldn't be as much? I think we're still stuck in the drop mentality. I don't know that it's necessarily overhyped, even in the physical world, right? You know, the the idea of limited release items and capturing and rewarding or playing on people's FOMO, like that's part of life, right? And that will continue, right? That isn't going to go away. But using that model, and just trying to like you know direct that model towards different brands or different types of products that feels like it's getting pretty tired right and so there needs to be i think some broader thinking there needs to be more collaboration you know one of the great philosophical elements of web3 is this idea of being able to work together this future vision of composability of assets and technology and platforms like we're not there yet and you know i think given where we are in the market, understandably, people kind of have their heads down. I think the more people who kind of pick their heads up and say, how do we work together to make the pie bigger and get to the next phase? Like, it's going to make it easier and better for everyone. Awesome. Well, uh, I think we'll end on that very nice and positive note, even though it was a (laughs) gotcha question. Uh, Where can people find out more about you, Scott? www.candy.com is where our uh, business lives. You can find us on all the social platforms. For me, I'm not a big Twitter guy. Unfortunately, I'm uh, more active on LinkedIn. Likewise at the moment, actually. You can find me at Pet Barisha on LinkedIn. You can find Sporting Crypto at sportingcrypto.com. And you can find the newsletter at sportingcrypto.substack.com also. Just remember, before we wrap up, that none of what we have said during this show is financial or business advice, and this content is for informational purposes only. Web3 is underpinned by crypto, and crypto is volatile, meaning you can lose money if you are buying these assets personally or as a business. Where we are recording right now in the US, the majority of crypto asset companies are unregulated. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe for more content, and please do leave us a review, preferably five stars, but uh, won't take offense if it's four or more with some constructive criticism. Thanks very much for watching or listening and uh, we'll have more sporting crypto content for you soon.